and welcome to The Bunker. I'm Ros Taylor. Rishi Sunak wants to make it his mission to encourage young people to study maths for longer, until the age of 18, in fact. How easy is that going to be, and how can we make people less afraid of the subject? Tim Oates is Group Director of Research at Cambridge University Press and Assessment, and he was involved in drawing up the national curriculum in 2010. He joins us to talk about all things maths. Hello, Tim. Hi. Hi, Ross. Tim, did you like maths at school? <laughs> That's a great question. Um, no, I hated it. I was very, very good at it when I was very young. And then I had a very bad experience with some teachers during primary. By the time I got to secondary, I hated it. And I was kind of a maths refuser. And fortunately, my school put me in a low attaining group with an absolutely brilliant teacher. And within a few weeks, I was really into maths and loved it. And I think that's a story which has always made me reflect on people's experience of mathematics, both in primary and secondary. That's fascinating to hear. Can I tell you why I didn't really enjoy maths? Because I wasn't that bad at it. I was always in the top set for what that was worth. But I used to get stuck and there was no way to finesse my way round it as I could in art subjects. I didn't like the feeling of getting stuck. It led to panic. I didn't know where to turn. I was, sometimes I was too embarrassed to ask for help or I didn't know how to do it. And so I always feel like underachieved in maths. And in, certainly I underachieved in GCSE maths, which was as far as I got. Is that, do you think, a common experience for people? Yeah. Was there any element of being female as well in that, in terms of what, what was happening around you? Possibly. I went to a mixed comprehensive and I don't think anybody was particularly underplaying my ability. So I, I'm not sure it was that. I think it was almost pride, really, and reluctance to ask for help. Okay, interesting. Now, I think this has changed dramatically since 2010, actually. When, when we were working on the national curriculum, what was interesting was that the government at the time didn't wait until the new curriculum would be in schools, which we knew at the time, of course, would be 2014. They didn't wait in 2010 to get moving on improving maths pedagogy in this country. They set up the maths hubs, they involved the National Centre for Excellence in Teaching and Mathematics to manage the exchange with Shanghai. It's all good stuff, and it was really evidence-driven. And one of the key aspects of that was to really encourage kids to engage in a maths pedagogy which enabled them to see the structure, the underlying structure of mathematics in problems. And if they had misconceptions or were suffering the kind of uh, of lack of confidence and mild confusion that you were describing then those misconceptions and mild confusions would be identified by teachers very swiftly through rich exchange within the classroom and the misconceptions and confusions addressed immediately. And I think that's been a massive improvement in maths pedagogy since 2010 and it's shown in our national standing, our improvement has, has gone up, particularly in primary. Can you go into a bit more depth? I know it's, you know it might be difficult to, to do, but let's take, say, algebra and when kids first start to learn algebra. And it seems to be, from my experience with my own kids, a bit of a mental effort sometimes to make that leap to the abstraction of, you know, A, B, and X, and so on. How do you do that differently now from in the past? Okay, I think one thing is that the way some research about mathematics suggests we should see maths is as a language, a completely unique language. And it's, in a way, it's, it's hard to learn as a foreign language. And if you 
come to that learning late, it, it becomes harder. I think that's that's a good way of thinking about that. It's a way of describing the world, but it has its own rules and you know it's unforgiving in terms of of mistakes. But at the same time, there's many different ways to approach something, many different ways of seeing something. You can solve a problem through through the basic four operations, or you can be encouraged to solve it through a bit more abstraction, as you say, into algebraic understanding and algebraic concepts. I think the best mathematics introduces these kind of ideas and exposes kids to the ideas very early. And we certainly see that around the world as a kind of a pre-algebra phase where you can see you can apply a relatively abstract language to things. And it's, it's there that we see higher participation, greater enjoyment, and better equity. So we, we do know a lot from research and from comparisons across different jurisdictions, looking at Singapore, Hong Kong, other nations, and, and reflecting on, on how we should be encouraging kids to acquire this, this abstracted way of seeing the world. You mentioned that girls haven't always been encouraged in maths. Do you feel this, this does seem to be a problem still? I mean, my, my daughter has just chosen her GCSEs and she's chosen computer science and she is much mocked for it. You know, she gets this is an all-girls school and she gets a lot of, this is boring. Why aren't you doing arts? Why aren't you doing music? Why aren't you doing dance? Computer science is boring. So do you still think it is a problem, STEM, not, not appealing to girls? I think... The number of girls that we have opting for those subjects is a problem. I don't think it's it's purely an issue of appeal. Yeah, I mean, I look at, at the statistics for qualifications a lot. We do here, my research group is assiduous in looking at the participation figures right the way across subjects. And we still see boys versus girls participation as a leaping out at us fr- from the data. About 30,000 young people doing A-level physics, only 6,000 of those are girls. Mathematics A-level hasn't shifted since 2005. Currently about 60,000 males doing maths and further maths, and only about 35,000 girls. So there is definitely something going on. You use the word appeal, but it's in a sense, it's what we encourage boys and girls to think is suitable for them. And very good research done before pandemic, which showed that in primary school, young kids' perceptions of occupations are very gendered. You know, who can be a doctor, who can be a nurse, who can be a mechanic, who can be a computer science, who can be in the service industries. Very gendered. That gendered view of those occupations reduces significantly during primary. That's a very good thing, I think. And yet it picks up again when there are subject choices at GCSE and, and the kind of the, the, all the influences from peers, from family, begin to cut in again when those tough decisions are made about which, which way to go. I, I think we've, we've got to do a lot more in, in making, making sure that the wrong pressures are not being exerted on young people in respect to their decisions. I mean, Sherry Kutu has set up Maths for Girls and it's doing a great deal of work by bringing high-performing professionals, female, into schools to, to show girls that women can flourish in occupations which, to date, have been seen largely as dominated by males. I think it's all good stuff. But we, we, have, we can't just let it run, as it were, because what's clear is that out there in society, there are gendered views, say, of occupations, and they are influencing young people at these key decision points. Rishi Sunak is, of course, keen for 
more people, possibly everyone to study who's in education to study maths until the age of 18. There was quite a lot of resistance to that idea, in the press certainly, as forcing people to continue with a subject which sometimes they didn't feel they were particularly good at and would struggle with. Do you agree with him that it ought to be studied in some form, at least up to the age of 18? Again, I, I, what I want to do a bit, actually, Raz, is, is just unpack what it is that he's after. Mm. <laughs> and I think we're already changing the pattern of participation and attainment in mathematics as in, in primary, and hopefully that will feed through into secondary, into key stage three, 11 to 14, and then into key stage four. We, so, so we're already doing stuff which we hope will filter out. But it's certainly the case that he is concerned about something which a lot of educationalists, including myself, are concerned about. Let's just take, for example, somebody who wants to study, study psychology. It's actually a very numerate discipline when you get to university. But you can choose A-levels, which don't carry on in respect of encouraging you to think about mathematics or doing it. So you could do psychology, history and literature and then apply for some psychology courses in higher education. You could get in, but you suddenly find yourself faced with particularly statistical analysis, which you had neither practiced nor been engaged in for quite a long time. And that's not, that's not great. So we do have a real progression problem. We also in the economy have a gross shortage of technician level applicants for occupational slots right the way across our economy, which are vital for our future economic performance in our society. So we've got a dramatic shortfall in engineering and in numerate disciplines. So there is a societal problem. And, and you know, obviously, that there's much talk in the press and in, in both sides of the commons about the productivity agenda. Now, not, a lot of that focuses on the kind of occupations, greening the economy, expansion into knowledge industries. And I'm afraid a lot of those are numerate and require mathematics and all science. So he's onto something, definitely. The challenge comes, as you rightly say, and do we make it a requirement so that people who are, say, reluctant mass learners are forced to do it? Well, the history of that isn't great in our country, actually. So we, we've got to find both uh, provision in the form of qualifications and provision in the form of learning provision, you know, being in rooms, doing stuff, supported by people who are really good math pedagogues, which will be a rewarding experience minute by minute for a larger number of kids. Now, that I think turns Richie Sunak's desire into something that almost all of the educationalists who've been concerned with this would sign up to. And it also outlines the nature of the challenge. We don't have science specialist teachers in primary. We don't have maths specialists in primary, as many as we, we need. We did have a bit of a push on it, but we've kind of stopped that push. And yet many kids' ideas of mathematics, about whether they want to do it and whether they enjoy it, are formed early. And we've got to kind of really recognise that to get that higher volume of kids from 16 doing maths, we have to work right the way through the continuum of ed education. So is it a question partly of encouraging more and better teachers to teach maths? Well, we're right in the midst of, of a bit of a period of teachers being at loggerheads with government. 
And although I think everybody's anxious to resolve that, to make sure that kids are in schools and we're addressing all the problems that COVID continues to present us, we've got to think quite hard about how we can have really high quality maths pedagogy and yet knowing that we're going to have a relative shortfall of specialist teachers, we've really got to confront this one. And I think that means academy change, thinking hard about learning materials, digital and paper, about how non-specialists can can nonetheless deliver high quality maths programmes to young people. I think we can do a lot, by the way. I don't, I don't think it's saying, oh, we haven't got enough maths teachers, it's all a disaster, we can't possibly do it. No, I, I, I'm not there at all. I think there are many ways in which we can really support teachers to do a good job. And I do think digital materials and paper-based materials, good maths programmes, are desperately needed. In Key Stage 3, at transfer from primary to secondary, a lot goes wrong there, not diagnosing the problems that kids have at 11 on entry to secondary. And then if we are going to encourage kids to stay on at 16 and study maths as part of their programme, we need to look at how we can take the sort of semi-success of things like functional skills and previous programmes and really turn them into a success by supporting teachers who are some of them specialists, some of them non-specialists. about the curriculum? Because of course you worked on the review as we discussed in 2010 and that was implemented from before 2014 when it's due to come in. Is it still fit for purpose or does it need to keep changing because of the, the new, the different requirements that jobs have, that industry has? Yeah, and that's a great question. How frequently should you change a national curriculum? You know, what sort of things happening in the economy or society should trigger a review or a consideration of aspects or parts of a national curriculum. And different countries answer that question somewhat differently. And it's important to to know that. Unfortunately, the OECD said, oh, looking generally across all nations, they review their national curriculum roughly on a 10-year cycle. And so that's been turned by some people into a, a claim that you should always review the whole of your national curriculum every 10 years. That's an error in my view. If bits of a national curriculum are working really well, don't mess with them. If there are things that do need to change because of what's happening in the economy and society, then do change them. And in mathematics, I'm afraid I see absolutely no reason to change anything that was put in the national curriculum. And the reason is as follows. That review in 2010 used the very best research that was extant about the sequencing of mathematics, about the way in which it should be approached, and the importance of really grasping the structure of mathematics in problems. And listen to this, the importance of meaningful practice. It was quite amusing, Ros. I was driving back from France, I picture it, uh, in one summer during the National Curriculum Review. I had a phone call and uh, stopped the car, got on the phone, and the minister said, the civil servants have taken out the word practice out of all of the introductory aims of the National Curriculum. It's a disaster. And I said, yes, that is a disaster, Nick. Why, why have they done that? And, and Nick said, well, the civil servants have said that practice is boring. It's boring repetition. I said, oh, God, they just haven't understood it, have they? And he said, no. We said it's got to go back in because meaningful practice is at the absolute heart of good mass learning in places like Singapore, Hong Kong, Shanghai. And it isn't boring repetition. It's systematic variation of problems. 
rehearsal of what you know understanding can do in terms of an operation. Let's just take something like multiplication. This is very clear in Singapore. The mass program presents kids with incremental challenge in applying mathematics, in applying multiplication, in, in increasingly demanding problems. And when an individual kid experiences a difficulty, that's clear to the teacher and they're supported and their confidence and their expertise grows. And they use the term practice to describe that. And kids take back home practice books, they rehearse what they can do, they get a reinforcement out and pleasure and reward out of doing things well. The things that they have fluffed or struggled on, clear to the teachers, additional support, then they can master it. This is why the term mastery is so important. So, got back to England, put it back in again, and it's in there. And it, it absolutely gels with what was done on the Shanghai Exchange with teachers. It absolutely gels with what's in brilliant maths programmes like Maths No Problem, which have really supported and scaffolded maths learning in primary schools. And so it possesses something that we call curriculum coherence. Great expression of the maths programme in terms of progression, what should follow what, deep learning, breadth of application, breadth of practice, and emphasising this, this idea of mastery of mathematics for all kids, not just you know, high-ability kids, but for all kids. Um, and, and I suppose, again, I'm going back to what your experience was. I would guess that the kind of approaches I've been talking about would have been a remedy to the experience that you had in school. I think they might well have been. Can I just ask you finally, what can people and parents, carers, do to motivate their kids at home around maths? Because this is something that preoccupies me a little bit. And like many parents, I found the pandemic home learning situation very difficult. You know, we had to deploy many, many bribes, which I didn't like doing, but it seemed the only way forward. And, you know, I'm in the situation now, for example, with my primary school age boy who we help him with his homework every week. We um, bribe him with sums to do mental arithmetic before he has his pudding each day. And we're not yet instilling any kind of love of maths in him. How could we do that better? How could we try to do that? Love of maths. I'm not, I'm not sure that we're ever going to achieve a situation in which everybody has that kind of emotional relationship with mathematics. <laughs> I think we are going to get to a situation where, in terms of the mathematics which will be essential for their lives, in terms of the mathematics which will enable them to participate in the economy in a really rewarding way, we can really crack that. And, and we probably will have a growing proportion of kids who love maths and can really pursue it to a very high level. I think we need to be honest about maths and say that it is tough to acquire. It is like a foreign language, but it's worth doing because it's a tremendous asset personally in terms of personal life, in terms of financial management, being aware of how to manage money, how to borrow, how not to borrow. Um, how to how to unlock occupations and an occupational progression by showing to employers that you're capable in areas that they're interested in. I think we can achieve all of that. Well, I do a lot of lesson observation around the world, and I do a lot of lesson observation in this country. If I if I think about your child, and and think about well, you know, I was in a very school in a tough area recently, and. 
this was a this was in key stage four, and they so po they, they were they were fourteen and fifteen year olds that they had their sights pretty firmly set on how they were doing in GCSE, and I know that in that room there were some kids who were doing well, who in other schools would have been struggling, and the teacher was using technology. They had a screen, a, a smart board, and all of the kids were tackling a problem. But the screen was split into 28 boxes, and the teacher could see how each child was tackling the problem. And at one point, they, they stopped the, the lesson and said, right, there are three of you making a common mistake. Let's discuss it. And the whole class were involved in discussing it, how it was a misconception, and how not to fall into that trap, and how to ensure that in future uh, they understood the structure of the maths required and the operations needed. Now, all the group participated in that discussion. And I think it was about having schools in which each and every child participates in this social learning around mathematics. They all feel progression is possible. They all feel with effort that they can achieve more. And they get tremendous positive vibe back from the incremental achievement which they're making. And each little bit of achievement is a step towards a higher grade in their GCSE at 16. So love of maths, yes, if we can do that, fantastic. But if we can identify the misconceptions, provide feedback, and feel that sense of achievement, then we'll be doing a lot to actually get all kids to a level of attainment which is needed for them, for society and the economy. And we will buck the trend of what was happening in maths in the experience of mathematics during the 80s and 90s. Tim, that was a really inspiring interview, I thought. Thank you so much for joining us. It's been really great. Thanks so much, Ross. Supporting the bunker does not involve a sophisticated grasp of maths. You can do it by searching Patreon Bunker Podcast and donating as little as £3 a month to help keep us going. I'm Ros Taylor. Thanks for listening. The Bunker Daily was written and presented by Ros Taylor. The producers were Alex Reese and Jack Gerbertson, with assistant production from Kasia Tomashevich. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis, and the audio producer was me, Jade Bailey. The group editor is Andrew Harrison, and our marketing manager is Gina Richard. Artwork by James Parrott, with music by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production.